Hello, and welcome to Morella Story Podcast. As always, I am your host, Caitlin Vagadis, and in today's episode, I will be talking a little more about, uh, it's more of a more sensitive and personal story. I kind of find it a little difficult to talk about, and I don't think I would have chosen to tell this testimony or like this story if I didn't think that there was people in this situation that this might help or benefit. And I... I honestly find it a little harder to talk about than the suicidal thoughts and and I don't really know exactly why that is but so I guess before we begin if you've ever gone through a situation in which you were sexually harassed or have anything along those lines I wouldn't recommend listening to this episode and definitely not listening to it alone. I am not trying to claim that that was something that happened to me it is not but we do have a little more intimate subjects for this podcast episode. So I feel like if you were in one of those situations, it might be a little difficult to hear about and listen to alone. This is like one thing that I keep procrastinating and putting off. I didn't release this episode last week, not because I was procrastinating. I got a concussion when I was out with friends the one night. And so I couldn't look at the screen for like a week and a half. It still kind of hurts, but it's bearable at this point. I think that's all I really have to go over before we begin. I guess I shouldn't procrastinate any longer, so here we go. In the summer entering my junior year, I began to go out with several different groups that I was acquainted with and was attempting to find a new group to fit in with before the start of the new school year. However, I felt out of place and awkward with meeting new people, and I was also so detached from everyone around me that I could not fully connect with anyone. By the end of the summer, however, I had made friends with Hannah and hung out with her friends at lunch when school rolled back around. However, her friends were having their own drama and didn't like the amount of drinking Hannah was doing, which I often participated with her because I needed the crutch of alcohol to socialize among other people, and in a small town where very f- there were very few other options on the weekends. Besides, I had quit soccer, and so for the first time, I was not in training roles in the fall. So we went on, Hannah and I, drinking together, often just the two of us washing away the problems of all the people that had turned against us. At this point, I had started developing issues with my boss for being hungover at work. Really, every coworker was too, but I stopped trying to hide it because I had given up on trying to impress my boss after she continuously pointed out that I was no different from my alcoholic family, and she would make snarky remarks about how the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, despite the fact that the rumors and gossip she heard about my family was incredibly exaggerated and misinformed, and many of the details were likely a creation of her own imagination. She had even purposely scheduled me on the days that I had asked off to work my other job, and would complain to the supervisors that I was constantly switching my days with other people. Besides Hannah, I had joined a group of friends that was honestly a mix of people from every group in high school that formed a group chat at the beginning of the year called the Cat Pack. This group would hang out on the weekends, and I found that many of them had frequently made out or hooked up at parties, and I watched secondhand as many of them fell for guys that that was only using them for the benefits of their friendship. Some even started dating with a relationship based on hooking up. I had witnessed this and the heartbreak that would follow, and the gossip they spread about it, 
and I was further convinced that I did not want to have my first kiss as a random makeout at a party because I didn't want to be in a similar situation many of these girls found themselves in. Furthermore, despite hanging out at the Cat Pack every weekend and the close-knit nature of the group, I never felt like I belonged. Many of these girls had been friends for years and I felt like I was on the outside, although they never treated me like that at all. And this imposter syndrome, so to say, was a figment of my imagination, but was too real to ignore. I sat back and waited for the connection with them to fade out and prepared myself to be on my own all over again, waiting for them to leave me like the last group. Therefore, when prom rolled around, I knew I didn't want to go with anyone from my own school because I felt so unwanted there. So I chose a friend from the town over, and since I knew a few of my other friends were still looking for dates, I set up a few of his friends to go with my own. When the prom rolled around, I did what you would expect. I drank too much and too quickly, and did not even make it to the after-after prom. So my date's friend, Seth, who was driving that night, had to bring me home early. It was embarrassing to say the least, but I began to text Seth, who tried to piece together what had happened the night before. And I was glad that he was able to laugh about it, and we started texting frequently. And I had paid him back by driving him the following weekend. We would swap stories of drinking and slide up on each other's stories and discuss what was going on throughout our day. And for the first time in well over a year, I felt close to someone. The closest person to me other than him was Hannah, but I still had put barriers and walls up emotionally between me and her because of the drama of the previous year that had marred my ability to reach out and trust another person. I was cautious and closed off, waiting for many people to come and go as they pleased. Any of the people I hung out with that year could have left me at the snap of a finger and I would have allowed it, unfazed and prepared. I was not attached to people. I did not put my trust or faith in anyone. I was in a position in which I should have thrived with the new friends that I had created, but I was damaged and built up with the walls. However, with Seth, I did not feel judged or felt that I was just an extra in someone else's life. I felt wanted and cared for. Passing out at prom was embarrassing and I regretted it deeply, but being able to laugh about it with him rather than overthinking it and allow it to consume myself was refreshing. Two weeks had passed and one of my St. Henry friends invited me to a party. And by the end of that night, we played What Are the Odds? And he walked over and started playing and he was, he was dared to get my number. Of course, what they did not know is that he had already gotten it from me when, from when I had drove him home the week prior. Shortly after the game finished, we split off and went home. And he and I were in the same car load and I was sitting on his lap and we picked, off, we picked up our conversation where it had left off in the, those text messages. Then we stopped talking and I began to realize what was about to happen. Then for a second, I thought about all the fears and the stories of being used and objectified and all the people that I knew who were dating only for the hookups and why I waited so long compared to everyone else. But in that moment, I wasn't worried about any of that happening with Seth. And then we kissed. I wish it was a little more romantic, as in at the bare minimum being alone and not in the back of the seat of a car with three other people while we were drunk and the person next to us was running in and out of the car stealing yard flamingos to make a beer flabongo. So my first kiss wasn't romantic, but at the very least it was comical. But I had, I was happy with it anyways, because the setting didn't truly make any difference to me. Besides, it was something me and Seth could make jokes about later on, which only brought us closer. At that point, we had started developing inside jokes. We shared stories of the past relationships and we were able to make jokes about that. 
but we talked about more than just our embarrassing moments in that first kiss. I got to know him a little better and told him about what had happened the last year after the meet and the current disputes with my mom in which I wasn't yet very open about. We updated each other about our days and our weekend plans with friends. Our conversation was continuous, and if I did leave him on red, I could count on him to restart the conversation. He was my favorite notification and the brightest part of my day. I don't remember all the good things or what we talked about because it is the little things that make the biggest difference and yet are the easiest to forget. However, I remember how it felt. For the first time in over a year, I felt like I finally opened up and found a friend I could truly be close with. I was always partially blocked off and on the defense around others. But I trusted Seth and never questioned whether I was wanted when I talked to him. I was genuinely happy. May rolled around and I was in St. Henry for a co-worker's graduation. I saw Seth across the room and he told me that he was driving that night. So I asked him for a ride home later and he had agreed. And so I spent the rest of my night drinking with my friends. I hardly talked to Seth. No one knew we were talking to each other so much lately. I hadn't realized how drunk I was because at the time I thought I felt fine. Seth brought me home and we were chatting on the drive there. And by the time that we pulled into my drive, I realized I wasn't ready to go home yet. So I asked him if he wanted to park behind our barn. He seemed a little surprised but pulled around. We sat over by the stack of boulders that we pulled from our field. And my dog came over and I remember he was playing with her and telling me about, how, about his dog and the one he had previously. The next thing I remember was stepping into the back seat. And he leaned in and we kissed and started making out. I remember fragments of the sequence of events, but to be honest, there was very few details I remember. But the one thing I, I could not forget was him unbuttoning the top of my jeans and his hand slipping down. I let it happen because I trusted him. Seth was harmless and I knew that he wasn't using me, but a part of me was still a little scared. But as I said, I allowed it. But in the morning, I couldn't really remember how it happened or even how it felt. Seth was checking in on me the following day and asked me if I was doing okay because he was sober and I wasn't and he realized how it looked and I insisted I was okay. Yet to be honest, it did bother me, but I wanted to be fine with it so I forced any guilt down and ignored it to the best I could. What had happened was not like me. Up until two weeks ago, I had never even kissed someone and it, felt, it just felt as if it ha was happening so fast and I wish I could remember more than I did. Yet I knew it was bothering him too. He said that he was talking to one of his best friends from a Catholic camp that he attends every year and said that his friend was not fully approving because it seemed, because it just seemed wrong. It was something that I appreciated about Seth was that he was caring and he had a conscience and he would always check up to see if I was okay, but asked me not to tell anyone. Something seemed to bother him, something he wasn't saying. I asked him about it and he replied, I just don't want you to think that we were talking. I don't think of you in that way. I remember exactly where I was when reading that message, sitting in our green Chevrolet Colorado truck, sitting next to my sister Rose, in the passenger seat three-fourths of the way down Palothia Road, only a half mile from home, and my heart dropped. Of course, I had not known he had felt that way, and he had never gave any indication that he felt differently about me. And I don't think I would have ever hopped into the backseat of his car the night prior, had I known that information. I felt so naive to think that I meant anything more to him than just a hookup. But I did not want to sound so dim-witted that I told him that I was aware and that ne I never thought of we were talking anyways. I partially told him this because I knew that if I admitted how much it hurt, 
our talking may cease. And I was not ready to let go yet. Perhaps I should have walked away, but the idea of losing him felt so much worse than staying. So I adapted to hiding the way I was feeling and hid them so much that at times I had even fooled myself. I started making excuses for it. For example, although I was not entirely for sure what he was going through, he had dropped hints in our conversation that he was going through some things. So I told myself that perhaps he wasn't emotionally in the right spot to be in a relationship, that perhaps he did like me back, but the timing was wrong. Yet one thing was for sure. Ever since receiving that text, a fragment of the trust I had in him had broken off. We agreed to continue as friends. I offered to have him come over with some of my friends and he was willing to make up the plans or reschedule if he could not make it. It helped erase some of my fears about him acting as if he did not want anyone to know that we were communicating, which prior to this moment made me feel small and something to be ashamed of. He could not have made it the day that my friends came over to my place due to prior arrangements he had with the boys he hung around with. Therefore, we made different arrangements to watch a movie in my basement on Monday before I would leave for 4-H camp to serve as a camp counselor. To have him come over, I told my mom that I was having someone else coming. I didn't like her know, knowing when I had boys coming over because she had a tendency of holding that over my head in arguments, especially when it didn't work out. Seth had lied to his mother as well, telling him that he was going to, that he was going to be at Walmart with his friends. I waited outside until he got there so my mom wouldn't see that it was actually Seth that was coming over and not the friend I told her was coming. Then we got down into the basement and I set up the projector and told Seth the movie I had chosen was The Bucket List which was an inside joke between us. I knew what was going to happen that night, but I just shut out the thoughts that it meant nothing to him and replaced them with the hopeless maybes, what-ifs, and excuses. I had hoped that he was just guarded, not that he didn't care. And to be honest, I just wanted to watch a movie, but at the same time, I was new to the whole kissing thing, and it felt good, and I didn't want it, I didn't want it to end. I was afraid if I stopped, he would leave. When we did start kissing during the movie, he slipped his hand back into my pants and it felt different than I remembered it did the first time. It hurt and that's when I realized that I didn't actually remember what it was like the first time. And I guess I didn't have a full understanding of how intoxicated I was that night when he drove me home. I knew what he was doing, but I couldn't even recall how it felt. Perhaps I wasn't able to fully comprehend what was being done. I began to wonder if I had, if I had been sober that first time would I have still allowed it? And I think I would have. Yet the thought began to haunt me from that day forward. I was so caught up with him, but I was sober the second time and allowed it to continue because I thought that's what he wanted. Besides, I had already said yes once before that night and I didn't feel like I could say no now. Afterwards, we were lying on the couch and his arm was around me and I was trying to focus on that rather than the kissing. Just the feeling of being embraced and not being asked of anything else. And I tried to fall asleep, but I couldn't. I had just settled down and the movie was over. And Seth sat up and started putting on his shoes. And he was telling me about the text his best friend was his best friend sent him, hyping him up that night. The same way a girl would hype her friend up for a date. It was humorous to say the least. The story of their friendship always made me laugh. Then Seth started talking about his family and the random stories about all the times their younger brother went to the yard. ER, and I'm pretty sure Seth is low-key the cause for most of those visits. Then he was talking about his older brother and how tight they remained even after his brother had went to college. It was that moment, 
I w- in which I was the happiest. Just listening to him talk about his stories and the fa- his family. And we weren't just hooking up. We were in person and talking. And the mess of being friends with benefits seemed far away. But a part of me still felt terrible. When I realized that in the end, we were only still friends with benefits. And knowing that taints the genuine moments. And that moment almost felt fake now. All I wanted was to not wonder what we were, what I meant to him. I had realized talking to him that day that I didn't want to be friends with benefits because it made me feel so objectified and meaningless. The following day, I took him up on his offer to talk about what had happened. So after school, I told him about how it felt and I was not how I wasn't fully aware of what was happening the night he drove me home. And I never really knew how much I was I never really knew how much I wasn't able to comprehend until it happened again while we were both sober. Except the timeline doesn't quite seem right. Because I talked to him while we were still in school, and school was out by the third time we kissed. So perhaps I'd never told him, or I told him at a later date. But one thing is for sure, I never told him that I didn't want to be friends with benefits. And when we did meet, that was my intent. But when the time came up to speak up, I remember how he mentioned he didn't want the same thing, and I didn't want to be reduced to just friends. And so I feared what the alternative may be, and I stayed silent. I did not say what I what needed to be said, that I was hurt and I was unhappy. I felt like I was nothing even though he was so kind and understanding, and probably would have understood if I did speak up. But I never gave him the chance to react to how hurt I was, because I was so terrified. Instead, we just talked for an hour or so. It was so free-flowing as we talked about our friends and all the dumb things we do on the weekends and our plans for that night. But to me, it wasn't real. Of course, he was talking and joking with me genuinely, and it was real. But as long as we were still friends with benefits, the fact didn't matter. The benefits weighed much heavier and had a much larger presence, while all the friendship elements, however grand or beautiful they were to me, were only in a veneer. The realness was always in question. So I didn't address it throughout those weeks. I talked to one of my friends about it, and even to her, I would never directly say that I really liked him, or that I was in so much pain with the current situation. Instead, I would say how, that I didn't know how I felt about him, and that I thought perhaps he was just going through some things at the moment, and that he did care about me, or that maybe someday, or eventually, things would work out. I think I never admitted to liking him, or I didn't like the fact that what we were doing was wrong. So I had hoped that if I actually started to believe I was impartial, I would cease to beat myself up about it on the inside. So I denied myself all the feelings, and just went with it. And here's the thing. It still hurt anyways. Then I hit a breaking point. Number one of many. I went out with some of my friends and on the ride home, I was sitting next to one of my guy friends and he slipped his hand into mine and I knew what he was doing. And I didn't want to because I thought about Seth and I couldn't do that to him. I felt guilty to break up an unspoken loyalty to him and I wanted to respect his feelings. But then I realized everything I was thinking was the opposite plan of what he was verbally communicating to me. And I wondered, why stay loyal to someone who sees no future with you? Not so much in the sense that they can't see spending the rest of their life with you, but can't even bring themselves to commit to a maybe someday. And I decided not to do anything about it. 
Then I asked Seth the following week about whether there was any possibility in the future, and if I were with someone else, would that bother him? And I asked him this in a way to make it sound like it didn't matter to me. I believe my exact words were something like, we're not talking, right? He told me he didn't want a relationship in high school, but always made it sound like a maybe after that. Which was a weird thing about Seth that I began to pick up on. He would never directly say no or never to us. And when he did, he would tack on an added comment or disclaimer that came across as a maybe. And I think he did it because he was afraid to hurt my feelings. When you feel the way I felt about him, you tend to try to stay optimistic. You hang on a little too tightly to those empty maybes. But this time, for the first time in the three months we've known each other, maybe wasn't enough for me. So I asked him next, so if I were to kiss someone, you wouldn't care. And he responded, well, we are just friends with benefits right now, so I guess not. Then in a separate text, why, did you have someone in mind? And I did have someone in mind, but I did not tell him that. I wasn't thinking of the other person because I liked him in that way. I wanted to prove to myself that I didn't care or I wasn't bothered by the mess of the situation and I wanted an escape. In all honesty, it proved nothing because all I was doing in that moment was rebounding. I did it within three hours of him responding with the friend I mentioned before. And here's the part I hated myself for the most. I told Seth exactly what I did the next day. And I had partially hoped that he had been hurt, that he would be hurt because that would mean that I was more than friends with benefits to him. And that was such a problem within itself because if he had cared, I had ruined all prospects of a future with that action. When I read his response, he did seem disappointed. But the following day we got together and throughout the week he seemed to talk to me a little less and seemed a little hesitant because I had told him about the about kissing my other friend and the following week I did the same thing with the same person. Then the next then Seth the next day. But this time with Seth was different. Ever since I kissed another person, Seth and I had tried to go a little farther than before, and this time in which I was so drunk, I am nearly amazed that I even remember the night. But for the first time, I had reciprocated. Though it was the only time I have ever done so. There is a difference, I had come to realize, between having something done to you and you doing something with another person. And I think that is why I didn't forget what happened. No matter how drunk I got, I could never forget it. Because the shame was so great and the hate I had for myself was so loud, I could not ignore it. Within three months, I went from someone who refused to have their first kiss with someone because I had the biggest fear that I would be in a relationship with someone who was just using or objectifying me after I saw it happen with so many other people. Into becoming someone who was friends with benefits with a guy who acted like he liked me back and said something different. Into a girl that started rebounding with a friend that she knew she could get with because she thought he might like her back, essentially doing to him what Seth was doing to me. To a person who reciprocated doing something I didn't want to do and hoped that it would be enough to keep Seth around, fully aware deep down that all of that was ridiculous. In later years, I would go to college and talk to the counselor about all of this, and she would pass it off as Catholic guilt, which made me feel so dumb, as if my beliefs, which meant so much to me, was the problem. When really, the guilt came from compromising so much of who I used to be by allowing myself to be used and justified it by objecting myself and disassociating myself from my own feelings and the truth. The guilt came from the fact that I teared up when I looked in the mirror because I couldn't recognize the girl on the other side of the looking glass. 
The girl I saw, I loathed. It came to the point that I couldn't even look myself in the eye when I looked in the mirror. After glancing my, at my reflection, I would shift my eyes back down to my hands over the sink. I was ready to come clean and talk to Seth about everything I was thinking, but he had already left for a Catholic youth summer camp and wouldn't be on his phone for the remainder of the week, and the wait was excruciating. However, when Seth did come back, he beat me to it. I received a text with him confessing everything he was thinking, so that he felt terrible for everything. He wasn't proud of what was happening, and felt that we should call it quits for the friends with benefit phase. And I told him that I felt the same, so he told me everything he did over the past week that helped him deal with it, and the peace that he felt during Eucharistic adoration, and the weight he felt during confession, and the words the priest had told him to comfort him. Then he asked if I wanted to go to confession to clear my conscience, and he would come along because he wanted to ask the priest a question anyways, and I felt so relieved and agreed. But then I made the choice to ask him what he had wanted to talk about to the priest, and he told me that he was considering becoming a priest, and my heart dropped because that's when I realized it was over. We were over. Which I suppose was inevitable, but that never prepares you for when it happens. But before he explained everything, he warned me he needed to say something. And I told him that I had something to say as well. So when he finished, he asked me what it was that I wanted to say. Which was that I really liked him and hated being friends with benefits and wanted to take a step back and maybe hang out more without drinking or making out. I wanted a fresh start and wanted a more responsible and engaged future. I wanted to be with him regardless of the benefits. But how could I say that now? And how could I not support his new goal of discerning priesthood? A part of me thought it would be a phase. After going to confession with him, we went out to eat together and he told me the whole story. And if you could see how happy that life made him and the number of events that led up to him wanting to follow that vocation. I knew I could not disagree. It was the happiest I saw him. The next happiest I've seen him was when he was talking about his family that night when we watched the bucket list together. And I was heartbroken but happy for him. Although him talking about his family that night was the moment I knew he was the one, it was also the same qualities that I loved about him that would make him a good priest. And so, I did my best to support his new dream. But if I'm honest, it hurt too much for me to be as supportive as I wanted to be. And so I began to work on a book with different Bible verses, drawings, and interesting facts on Catholicism, and planned to give it to him for his birthday a few months away. Then, after giving this book to show that I truly did support him, I was going to walk away for my own good. My only regret, if I had one from that point forward, is perhaps I should have walked away much sooner. Before I continue into the reflection, I would just kind of like to make note, because I know, like, one thing I hate about this podcast is, since I'm talking about all the darkest moments in my life, there's a lot of people that have made a lot of positive impacts on my life, but the stories that I'm telling kind of makes them seem like a bad person because I'm talking about the bad times. But I wanted to, like, kind of make note that if this hadn't happened with Seth, it probably would have happened with someone else. And Seth is actually one of the nicest people that I've met, and he's, like, super understanding. And so I think that if it was someone different, it could have ended much worse. 
or made me feel a lot worse in the end. And so I'm like really thankful that it was him. And I come to I came to realize a few years later some of the things that he was going through at the time. And I think knowing what he was going through kind of makes things a little easier to bear and forgive. Because, I mean, I know I didn't make the best decision, especially with like hooking up with other people and the way that I would talk about things. And I think it's just important to make note that people will make bad decisions when they're in bad situations or if they're in pain or if they're upset about things, people are going to make mistakes. And I think it it doesn't make it right, but it makes it a little easier to forgive. I don't have much that I would have to talk about as a reflection for this episode. So, uh, one, a few things like I do want to mention was kind of at the beginning, I was talking about how I wasn't close with like friends because of the things that had happened in the previous year. And these can be considered like emotional traumas, which I think when we think of traumas, we think of like abuse or war for like people who are vets. And it can be a lot like things that seem much smaller can also serve as emotional trauma. And so I have a list of about 34 items of common uh, emotional traumas. This would include physical and sexual assault, natural disasters, military combat, combats or war, moving to a new location, severe injury, neglect, a difficult breakup or divorce, any form of abuse, witnessing violence or death, car accidents, being a victim of a crime, terrorist attack, parental abandonment, death of a loved one, bullying, having an absent parent, chronic illness, community violence, the loss of a job or business, pregnancy loss, racial oppression, medical trauma, near-death experiences, cyberbullying, forced displacement, generational trauma, homelessness, well, systemic oppression, traumatic birth, harassment, discrimination, animal attacks, infertility, and poverty. And so I don't want to say like I was bullied necessarily, but having that huge drama between my friends and like losing them kind of shaped the way I would handle situations in the future. Because what emotional traumas kind of create is like they adjust the way you perceive things in the future and like relationships with other people. There's like other symptoms of emotional trauma. I say like with PTSD, a lot of people will think of like the flashbacks or the night terrors kind of thing. And that can really happen with any of them, but they also kind of adjust the way that you perceive situations. So like perceived social stigmas can become really common where you think people believe this about you or that you, the way like you view yourself can change a lot, especially if you're a victim of abuse or bullying or just like a very negative social event, you can kind of start to believe that you're not worth as much or that you, that people are just going to leave you constantly. And so that was something that I was dealing with at that moment. And then with the situation with Seth in later years, it will kind of alter the way that I viewed relationships and handled things. And I don't, that's not really like his fault. I think a lot of it was like, since I already had anxiety and depression, the way that I perceived things were already a little dark and distorted. 
and then having a negative situation happen was just more evidence to myself of like why it was not worth it or I don't know that I wasn't I don't know my self-worth definitely went down and so I always kind of had this belief that people if they got to know me they would leave me or that they would be they would come to like hate me if they knew more about me and so that was kind of something that I kind of developed from the friend situation and then the thing with Seth as well. In addition to the subject that we were talking about with like the hookups and well I say hookups but for our areas hookups just like making out. I know in a lot of other areas that means sex. That's not really what I'm referring to when I'm saying hookup. Um, I wanted to discuss a little bit about what oxytocin is. Oxytocin is referred to as the love hormone and it's also like the sense of attachment between two people and it's really common in females although males also do release oxytocin and it's for women it's re it's released a lot during sex and childbirth and so it kind of gives you that attract that attachment to like your spouse and the child to kind of reinforce this like healthy family condition which is kind of like ingrained in the human like mind and so I'm just going to take a moment to kind of explain what oxytocin is and it's not fully stu studied so a lot of this is just theoretical but uh, oxytocin levels are high under stressful conditions such as social isolation or an unhappy relationship. Uh, the major question in the field therefore is whether oxytocin operates differently when it is released in response to social, socially connective experiences and when it is released under stressful conditions. And so uh, what that pretty much means is like you have, in addition to like the childbirth and the sex, there were like just small, like you can release small bits of oxytocin doing like just like physical touch or just hanging out with someone as well. It also releases in large quantities under stressful conditions. And there is one uh, theory to that is uh, say you're in an unhealthy relationship, you'll release a lot of oxytocin and that's not to fuel the attraction to that person that's like an abuser or anything, but it gives you the sense to start looking for other relationships or reach out to like a more healthy connection. And so, for example, how I started uh, hooking up with other people while like me and Seth were having that like whole friends with benefits stage, that could be a result of oxytocin trying to like tell my body and like mind that I needed to look for a healthier alternative than the relationship I was having with Seth at the time and honestly like hooking up with other people obviously wasn't a healthy thing either it was kind of like an instinctual or a more drawn tendency as a result of like that unhealthy relationship also with uh external validation which is really common with people with anxiety and depression where they're trying to get approval from other people one of the ways that they can get approval or the illusion of approval is through like intimacy like kissing sex or anything along those lines and so a lot of people will try to get sexual validation to prove that they are wanted or loved even though it doesn't really prove anything in the end and therefore their body kind of it's a very short release of like dopamine and this feeling of like fulfillment and then once it's gone it feels worse than it did before. They also found with uh, oxytocin uh, they would 
like they would give these oxytocin oxytocin injections to people with autism and Asperger's and found that they had an improved ability to identify emotional content or like a speech comprehension task uh, while those who had placebo did not. And so oxytocin, because like people with Asperger's or autism, it can kind of be really hard for them to understand social cues. And when they had those oxytocin injections, it was able to improve some of those abilities. So oxytocin, it's like for that attachment, but it can also help you understand like the partner a little better as well. So when uh, oxytocin is released during moments of low stress, uh, oxytocin, oxytocin physiologically rewards those who maintain good social bonds with feelings of well-being. But when it comes in on board in times of high stress or pain, it can it may lead people to seek out more or better social contracts, contacts, which I mentioned earlier. Uh, it, by the way, I got this information of oxytocin on Medical News Today and APA.org. And I'll put those links in on the website eventually. One of the researchers of the study, he posed that uh, it's called like immobility without fear. In other words, oxytocin may in a general, may in general protect the nervous system from shutting down and face the stressful circumstances. Oh, okay. Now I remember what this was about. So uh, another thing that oxytocin might do is like when people are giving like childbirth, it's an extremely like stressful and painful event. And so your body will flood with oxytocin to prevent your body from completely shutting down. So that's the immobility without fear. And then it also forms that attachment to the child and kind of kicks in that maternal instinct as well, which uh, they think this is like one of the reasons why oxytocin oxytocin is released during the childbirth because post-traumatic stress disorder is not usually associated with birth, although it is tremendously stressful. Oxytocin may also play an important role in helping females manage both emotional and uh, physiological responses during life-altering events, events such as childbirth, converting potential stressful event experiences into uh, opportunities for expressing love and joy. Um, what we also learned in school about oxytocin is like, uh, say you had a sexual partner and then later you... Uh, like you broke up that it's that uh attachment that you form because of the oxytocin that is released is still there and it will remain there for like the rest of your life and so that's why uh there's like one study saying like hookup culture is causing more depression because people who use this as like a validation or they have these connections it remains there and so it kind of just feels like they have this loss throughout their life and so i don't want to like tell people what to do or anything like that but hookup culture can be extremely damaging it can like teach you whether like you realize that start or not that you need like this validation from other people or these like constant rewards and it can kind of like alter the way you have your like sex life in the future uh for example uh excessive amounts of sex can become addicting and kind of lose meaning over time and so I don't want to, I don't want to see like I'm slut shaming, but I think it's wiser to kind of reduce the amount of sexual partners you have 
and to like limit the amount of hooking up you do because of the way it can affect you mentally and that like emptiness that can kind of result from constantly making out or hooking up or anything along those lines. But it's not really anything to be ashamed of if your number gets high or anything like that because it doesn't really, who you've been with does not define who you are at that moment. And so I think slut shaming kind of goes with like fat shaming where no one should ever have an opinion on your own personal number or what you're doing in your personal life. But if it's going to, if it comes to a point that it's affecting your health, like for weight, it could be your physical health and also your mental health for your intimate relationships that can kind of affect your mental health pretty severely. It's no one else's place to tell you about that or to like shame you for it. And quite frankly, if they have an opinion, their opinion does not matter and it's irrelevant. However, I think you need to come to a point where you kind of recognize that in yourself and you try to do better and improve it in the future so that you can kind of get that own that help for yourself. No one, people saw this one post and it was like in terms of like fat shaming. She was like, well, at what? how do you politely tell someone to like start losing weight? And then the guy was like, you get eight years of a medical degree and then you can tell them. And I think that's kind of goes the same way with like slut shaming. The only one that could maybe suggest it other than you recognize it in yourself is maybe a psychologist or a therapist that was like, well, I think this is something that could benefit you in the future. I just want to go out with just a cautionary responsible with who you choose to hang like hook up with or make out with. And I think it's really important to focus on some of the personal relationships before you get into like the sexual relationships because of the hormones that you release and how you view yourself will be like altered through those actions. Um, as always, uh, our Patreon is located in the bio of this episode and also on the website. The website's link can be found on our Instagram. It's a little, uh, you just like click on it in the bio. Our Instagram is more of the story podcast. Well, more of the story dot podcast. And if you have any personal testimonies, advice for anyone that's going through some situations or something that you just want to like chip in and let other people know. I was hoping to have a listener episode at the end of the series. Um, please email those stories to moralofthestorypodcast2021 at gmail.com. And I believe that's really all that I have for today. And today's quote is from Taylor Tomlinson, and it is, uh, love is blind and lust is Helen Keller. And that's the moral of the story.